Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I am Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek. Glad to be with you after various technical difficulties assuaged by my uh, ever-omniscient producer, Jason. Jason Lawson. And uh, loads of thanks to him. And uh, let's get on to some questions in a moment, but uh, in the... uh, uh, meantime, I need to tell you something as, as disgustingly self-serving as this may be. Uh, you may well know already uh, about uh, recent problems. The Old Price Homestead. Um, some years ago, I uh, appealed for help to get our crumbling 100-year house under repair, and we did have some work done on it then, but uh, not too well, as we later found out. And uh, I could go into the uh, the, the mess of it, uh, but uh, just outrageous sub-code uh, work, if you can call it that, on the thing, uh, you still had to uh, get ready to descend into a basement we didn't know we had uh, under the house and uh, uh, sort of a bat cave. And uh, now, uh, for at least a couple of weeks, uh, a different crew who know what they're doing have been uh, fixing it. But, uh, of course, this uh, takes a bit of buckage. Um, Carol and I have uh, put our whole retirement into this, but it, that doesn't cover it. Uh, and so we started a GoFundMe, and you can go check that out if you feel like uh, uh, helping the, uh, what is it, uh, Shea Price uh, uh, not to uh, sink into the ground. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Many of you have already been generous. I know this is a bad time financially to even ask, but if you're able, uh, like luckily many were, to help us out, we'd, we'd sure appreciate it. I thank you in advance. If you can't, don't worry about it. Okay, um, so check out GoFundMe. It's uh, the uh, Bible Geek uh, Home Repairs, etc. And uh, let's see. Well, I guess that's enough at the moment. Well, let's get into some questions. Boy, I've been wanting to do this for a while. This is from Chris Palermo. In, uh, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to be able to do a decent answer to this one. I guess I can try to fake it, but I'll just tell you what little I know. Uh, in Holy Fable, Volume 2, in the discussion of Luke, Chapter 1, you discuss the Habarim, um, uh, defined as a dining clubs of devout Jews, somewhat akin to the Pharisees, who met together to encourage one another and to reinforce their members' practices of piety. 
end quote. Can you explain more about the Habarim and how they may relate to the origins of Christianity? I'm interested in theories that place the origins of Christianity in the second century and societies like this, the Therapeutae, and others seem to be groups that kind of blurred the line between Hellenistic Judaism and Christianity. Uh, yeah, you know, um, th these are... I believe uh, E.P. Sanders pointed out that there is some confusion among some New Testament scholars the way they describe first century Judaism, uh, that uh, they seem to think the Habarim and the uh, Pharisees were one and the same, which has to do with the alleged exclusivity of the Pharisees. And, and it's, it's sort of a mess. Uh, his His book... Uh, on uh, Jesus and Judaism is very good uh, making dis distinctions like this but um the uh the I, I don't know how long the habarim continued on and i believe it was just in and around Jerusalem originally but it's certainly not inconceivable that it had that it uh, was a a natural uh, ancestor of uh, of the house churches of early Christians. I mean, it seems like kind of the same thing, right? Meal-centered and holiness-centered and so forth, so it might well have contributed to that. Uh, a Unitarian Universalist scholar who uh, I had the pleasure of uh, studying with at Drew, uh, he thought that Christianity came about from burial societies, uh, people get together and pool their resources to see to the burial of people. And, of course, in Judaism, that was a huge thing, right, to uh, one of the greatest uh, of the acts of charity, to bury those who uh, had no one to take care of it or whatever. Like uh, Joseph, like you may have wondered, what the heck's Joseph of Arimathea, especially if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, as in Mark, uh, not someone who uh, who was a Jesus supporter, at least it looks that way in Mark, nonetheless wants to uh, see a decent burial for Jesus who's been condemned as a false prophet. Why? Uh, well, because it, it, he's a fellow Jew, and, uh, and nobody else is going to bury him, apparently. I mean, you know, all of his fans... Uh, split, uh, and so it's a pious thing to do. The whole book of Tobit is about that. Uh, major, major thing. It comes up in the Gospels where uh, Jesus calls on some guy to follow him and join in the itinerant ministry, and he said, well, I'd like to, but let me bury my father first. There's a whole lot of difference of an uh, interpretation over that, but uh, the the big thing was that was such a duty it seemed to outweigh everything else and yeah that's that's right um, <laughs> reminds me of a favorite Diogenes uh, pronouncement story I guess should say from ancient cynicism uh, he was getting old and doddering and um, somebody said you know I hate to bring this up Diogenes but you don't look too well to me I, have you made any arrangements for when you shuffle off and he said oh no no I, i'm sure the stench will get me buried yeah well uh that was one of those conventions that the cynics thought were not worth bothering with but in judaism it was different you really had to do that and if you couldn't do it for yourself Somebody should uh, take you in hand. Well, this is a little bit of a, uh, a digression, but but um, 
this uh, scholar said he thought that it was burial clubs that uh, that became Christian uh, churches. Uh, you could also appeal to the kind of uh, memorial groups that got together at the tombs of well-known martyrs uh, uh, on the anniversary of their martyrdoms, and that uh, they would... Um, I don't know if you'd say pray to, it's the same problem we have discussing the veneration of saints and Catholicism, but they believed in the mystical presence of the departed and uh, would pray for miracles in their name and all that. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the, the, the burial clubs, but they were kind of uh, get-together societies for religious reasons, and you know, you gotta wonder if that's uh, the, something like that was the origin of it, and it might well be that some of the Habarim uh, became Christian churches, but as Burton Mack says, you can't assume that there is a single root to Christian origins that, that everything blossomed from. As for the Therapeutae, it's it's a very surprising fact that, you know, well, we know about them because of Philo of Alexandria talking about them in, in very uh, um, praising uh, honorific terms. Uh, they seem to have been a kind of a pious conventicle, you might even say kind of a, uh, a religious... Uh, brotherhood, the community, or whatever, uh, but they they uh, had a communal life, rather like the Qumran sect and or the Essenes, and uh, they would uh, discuss scripture and so forth, and many people have thought that they were a branch of the Essenes, because we know there were branches of them. Uh, it wasn't just the Qumran group, if they were Essenes at all. Uh, and uh, so that uh, this might be another window into knowing what they were about. Well, Eusebius and others thought that uh, that these guys not only became Christians or helped give rise to Christian churches, but that they were already Christians. And that uh, Eusebius says that... Uh, Philo was a Christian, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but it shouldn't, not that I think it was accurate, but if you look at the commonality between uh, the Christology of uh, the Epistle of the Hebrews, the Gospel of John, um, uh, some Pauline materials, it sounds a heck of a lot like Philo, right? And uh, you, I would say uh, the burden of proof is on the one who would deny that, uh, that um these guys were directly influenced by Philo. You might want to check out my uh, section on uh, on uh, the letter to the Hebrews in uh, the uh, third volume of Holy Fable. Well, uh, Eusebius thought that uh, Peter and Philo met in in Rome. Uh, and so I don't know where they got this, but they, it, that kind of means there was a long-standing living tradition, whether factual or not, who knows, uh, that um, that he was, that Philo was a Christian. Again, I don't think that's the case, but, you know, you can well imagine Philo and Peter might have met uh, and uh, had nice things to say to each other, but uh, who knows? Now, the, the most interesting to, to me... Uh, 
Mika's unconventional theory about the therapeutai was that they and any other type of Jewish monasticism uh, is Buddhist in origin, because we don't find anything like this uh, before uh, the, the Essenes described by Pliny the Elder and, uh, and Josephus and Philo. Suddenly there it is. Uh, where did it come from? Uh, and uh, and so uh, um, Christian Lintner in Denmark has argued uh, in great detail and with uh, pretty compelling arguments that uh, the, the Jewish monasticism was simply a Judaized version of of Buddhism. We know that uh, uh, I mean this is not like you know some people dismiss this as if it was like tantamount to saying Jesus was a space alien or something. Well, it's not. Uh, we know for a fact that the emperor Ashoka, or Ashoka, if you prefer, uh, sent Buddhist missionaries in, I think, the second century BCE into Syria and Egypt. Uh, and so the Buddhism, uh, Clement of Alexandria mentions the Buddha and so forth, uh, so it's by no means improbable that you're going to have a have a cultural contact like this. J. Duncan M. Derrett and a number of other scholars for a long time have said there really seem to be Buddhist borrowings uh, in the Gospels and so forth, and vice versa. Some things in Buddhist lore may be uh, based on Christianity. And uh, so that's an interesting possibility. And according to Lintner, the uh, some of the names have survived without much distortion, so that the Therapeutai uh, might represent the Theravada Buddhists. Oh, I don't know, and this is kind of far afield, but I'm telling you what little I know about the uh, the Therapeutai and the Habarim. Is probably you know is probably just the tip of these icebergs, and uh, one can only hope you know keep your fingers crossed even if it's difficult to type that way uh, that we might find uh, another bunch of documents from one or more of these groups. Boy, would that be fascinating! So thanks, Chris. Sorry I couldn't really tell you anything more definitive about that. Of course, I could try to make it sound more definitive, but what's the point of that? Hey, Nick has a question. Nick furiously trying on an eye patch. I assume you Marvel fans will get that. Greetings, O thrice greatest geek. May your days last in happiness. Well, they pretty much have so far. Thanks. Hey, Irenaeus, an influential second century theologian and church functionary, Bishop of Lyon in uh, Gaul, had an interesting and unusual interpretation of John 2, 19 through 21. First, let's read the actual verses as presented in the uh, King James Version GB, something Bible. Uh, uh, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple um, uh, of his body. Irenaeus interpreted this to mean that Jesus was 46 years old at the time this was said. If the temple took 46 years to build, so must have Jesus' body. He also cited John 8.57, 
then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Irenaeus insisted that Jesus must have lived a long life in his human form in order to experience and thus sanctify every stage of human life from childhood to old age. And, you know, to add a little bit more of this, um, Nick, uh, Irenaeus figured that uh, if, if Jesus were not um, in his... Uh, where, where was it? Yeah, if Jesus was in his thirties, uh, why would the his uh, detractor say not even forty years old? If he says you're not even fifty, wouldn't that imply that he must have been in that ballpark? Uh, and uh, this, you know, this is. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me. Uh, oh, and and this doctrine Nick refers to as the. Uh, doctrine of uh, recapitulation which um, Athanasius later on adopted that if Jesus took on the human lot it would mean a whole lot if he had died early uh, because he's like sanctifying the whole course of life this way yeah it's interesting uh, and he thought that Jesus was crucified in the uh, reign of Claudius, not Tiberius. Uh, so, okay, back to Nick. I'm curious, did this view die out in the pre-Nicene times, or did it reappear in later theology? Also, how, if at all, could this be harmonized with the synoptic gospels, which seem to indicate that Jesus died in his early 30s? Uh, well, you know, it... Uh, it's a, an almost inevitable inference, in Luke anyway, because he says he began his public ministry when he was about 30, uh, and then he he doesn't, uh, Luke, like the other synoptics, doesn't mention Jesus going to Jerusalem for any of the feasts except for Passover, which might imply that uh, he, uh, that his ministry began after uh, tabernacles and, uh, and so forth, and that uh, he was around publicly less than a single year. And of course, it's a commonplace observation among scholars to say that uh, uh, if you combine all of the things Jesus supposedly did in the Synoptic Gospels, it wouldn't take more than a year. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the idea that he must have been just beyond 30. That's a very reasonable inference, but um, I have to admit that uh, what Irenaeus says is also, I, I think, a pretty cogent argument. And uh, that, of course, the, the problem, as you say, is harmonizing it with the synoptics, but, uh, you know, that doesn't bother me because it would simply mean that there were different estimates as to when Jesus lived and how long. Like there were some Jews and Christians that thought Jesus lived in the first century BCE uh, under the reign of Alexander Janias. Uh, so who knows, right? I mean, it, it could be that... Um, they they kept updating the life of Jesus to keep it at a, a, 
a con comfortable distance from them, the early Christians, in order to uh, shorten the link between the supposedly historical Jesus and their bishops and so on. Uh, or it may be that uh, the attempts to date Jesus were like uh, those of Herodotus trying to date the existence of the historical Hercules. And uh, he, he said some evidence in the myths seemed to imply Hercules lived in the reign of this king, but others imply that one, uh, who knows? I think that may well be a parallel and that this, this difference simply um, uh, is uh, an example of that. Now, did this survive, this guess? I don't know of anybody that mentions it, though that doesn't mean much. There's an awful lot I don't know about this. But in modern times, it was Alfred Loisy, the great French uh, scholar who was drummed out of the Catholic Church. He was like the arch-Catholic modernist. And he pointed this out in the Gospel of John. And uh, I, I find it pretty darn convincing not that Jesus was necessarily about 50 when he died, and this is also assumes the three-year ministry implied by John's chronology. If at the beginning of his ministry, uh, he's 46, like the temple, and there's three years, then he dies when he's 49 or 50. Uh, it's a fascinating thing. I believe Loisy uh, talks about that in uh, his... Uh, I'm losing my memory here. The Gospel and the Church, I believe it is. Though anything by Loisy is worth reading. What a, what a fascinating mind. This is from Laudher. Probably mispronouncing that. But, uh, or if, if I am and, uh, you know, really recognize it, just consider it glossolalia. Okay, I recently encountered the word chthonic, C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C. At first I thought it was a reference to Cthulhu, but when I looked that up in a dictionary, I saw that it is a type of Greek cult involving ritual sacrifice. Would you speak more about this type of cult and the sacrifices involved? Um... Uh, aside from the Greek association, how would a Chthonic cult be distinguished from Judaism? How are Chthonic cults related to mystery religions, dying and rising saviors, etc.? Well, uh, it uh, has to do with the earth, right? That's what the term Chthonic uh, actually refers to. So when you talk about Chthonic deities, uh, it, it's referring to... Uh, either gods who lived underground, like in the netherworld, like uh, Demeter and, um, and uh, Persephone, uh, and uh, who, one was, uh, geez, uh, one was the, uh, the daughter of the other, and was uh, Persephone was the daughter, and she was married to Hades. And uh, she wanted to go back to the upper world, but she couldn't permanently, I think because she had eaten the pomegranate and that was a sacred thing that sort of bound her to the netherworld. But she was given the option of uh, living on the Earth's surface for half of every year. And of course, this has to do with the change of seasons. Uh, and and the um, this was a mystery called the, El the Eleusinian Mysteries, 
we don't know a whole lot about them, but we know there was a, uh, a mis an initiatory revelation, which would have been pretty disappointing without the catechism that led up to it, because you just got to see like a, an ear of corn. Uh, and that kind of is apparently a symbol of resurrection, as it is in the Gospel of John. Uh, Mithraism might have been considered a Catholic cult because Mithras was born of a rock, and uh, he, um, uh, let's see, he uh, was worshipped in Mithraea, uh, which were singular Mithraeum, uh, they, that was uh, the a grotto in which Mithraic worship was conducted. Uh, the Orphic religion, I believe, of Orpheus, who who uh, went to Hades to rescue Eurydice, but made the mistake of looking back at her as he was leading her up the shaft by uh, taking her by the hand, and uh, oops, uh, back to uh, Hades she had to go. And so it, it had to do with these underground cults that, at least in some of the cases, had meetings in underground chapels, grottos, etc., perhaps because the god involved was a... Uh, uh, was uh, in the, the netherworld and came up again or some such thing. Uh, the dying and rising god motif, that certainly is part of the Eleusinian mysteries because uh, uh, every year uh, Persephone, I love that name, would come back up from Hades for half the year. And uh, that's, uh, that's, and then, uh, uh, um, Mithras, like Helios, was uh, a solar deity, and the, uh, the the death and resurrection imagery there, and one of the church fathers said that they believed in a resurrection of Mithras, though I don't think we have any other evidence of that, but it had to do with the death and rebirth annually of the sun, and uh, that, of course, has to do with, uh, you know, astronomy and... Uh, in uh, the uh, the seasons and all of that. So they are, uh, Catholic cults were a uh, type of mystery religion with a heavy emphasis on preparation and catechesis and uh, initiation. By the way, it's been suggested that, uh, oh, and, and how would a Catholic cult be distinguished from Judaism? Well, uh, I uh, think it wouldn't be very similar to it unless you had a syncretistic combination of themes and there's good evidence that in the new testament period and for a couple of years after a couple of centuries afterward you did have a lot of this kind of thing with uh, like we have a, a sarcophagus of the, from a, a a jew who has the uh, the menorah on it and the wheel of the dancing attis and so forth so uh, their monotheism, or in this case, henotheism, was not uncommon pretty late in the game. But uh, you'd and you could say that Christianity may be a, a kind of syncretism between mystery religions, and I certainly think it was, uh, and uh, and Judaism. All right. Oh, about Lovecraft. 
Uh, it's been suggested that uh, Lovecraft, who knew loads about Greek religion, did have the word Cthonic uh, in mind when he coined Cthulhu, but the spelling is not quite the same. Uh, it's uh, Cthulhu is C T H um, U L H U, and this starts out C H T H. But what the heck? I mean, I uh, I don't think he would have been too bound by that. And, uh, of course, Cthulhu is associated with the underwater realm, uh, not with the earth. But, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily expounding Greek religion, but it's reasonable to infer that he got the name uh, from that, um, you know, just sort of a word association thing. Ah, okay, uh, this is from Nathaniel. I've come across, un unless this is Lodhurs, and I've mixed up who wrote what here, I'm sorry if I have, but whoever it is says, I've come across your theory that Paul was an antichrist and wanted to know what you thought of my theory, that instead he was intentionally trying to cleave off the straying Jewish cult followers from Judaism. Uh, if he could get this new cult to stop participating in Yahweh's eternal covenants like circumcision and kosher diets and abstaining from sacrificed meat and honoring the Sabbath, then could they even be Jewish anymore? If he could subvert their emerging theology and pry them away from Judaism, could he, in his mind, prevent more Jews from falling away? Um, uh, what if he went dark for a few years, claimed to be converted, studied their tactics and ideas, then worked his way up to a position of authority as, um, as a 13th apostle in order to try to kill off his troublesome sect, this troublesome sect, by poisoning it? Well, there have been theories that he was sort of a Roman operative trying to um, defuse militant zealot-like Judaism, or well, including Christians. You know, like Jesus has uh, disciples, Simon the Zealot and uh, Judas Iscariot, Judas the Sicarius, the, the dagger man, and Simon Barjona, which seems to mean radical or even terrorist. Uh, and so that uh, Paul was trying to subvert that uh, and trying to get them to adhere to a more pacifistic type of messianic Judaism. And that doesn't necessitate that he wanted to get them out of Judaism completely. Uh, it, rather, just that he was trying to get, if this is so even, that he's trying to tame these people to a more accommodationist live and let live approach such as the the Pharisees and the Sadducees had, right? They weren't fans of Rome, but they knew they lived in the real world and had to uh, coexist with the Roman government. And um, so uh, that's all he necessarily was doing. Now, did he try to get people, the Jews, not to be Jewish anymore? That's really a thorny question because uh, it it seems to me when he like in Galatians and even Romans, 
he, and um, for the sake of argument, I'm saying Paul, who knows who wrote them. But the, these authors, or this author, uh, seems to argue in such a way as to be saying, it, the Torah and the whole thing is fine for Jews and Jewish Christians, because Jewish Christians, you know, they wanted to follow the Torah as well, and there was no real conflict, if anything, like, Matthew viewed Jesus as a new Moses, uh, upholding the old Torah, but uh, deepening it in much the same way many of the rabbis were. Like the intent is the, the thing that leads to forbidden acts, so you've got to try to stifle lust and anger and so forth, uh, lest it turn into one of these things. Um, and so, yeah, no problem with being a Torah Christian if you're a Jew, but if you're not, if you if you're a God fearer, right? Like one of the the uh, non Jews who nonetheless were sick of uh, their native religions because of the unworthy myths that Plato wanted to exclude from his ideal republic. I mean, he didn't. He was no fan of these. <laughs> stories where Zeus and Apollo are raping mortal women. It's like, come on, this is not what you want your kids to hear in Sunday school. Well, a lot of the God-fearers felt that way, and they said, you know, those Jews, they have a, a, a nobler religion and a nobler ethic. They like the ethical monotheism, as, as we would call it. Uh, but they didn't want to become full proselytes, right? They didn't want to be circumcised and have to keep all these these dietary and ceremonial laws. And th that was all right with the uh, synagogue rulers. Uh, they said, if you want to come in uh, and, and go to synagogue and hear the scripture read and preached on, come on in, that's fine. Uh, and uh, there's certain things you can't do by way of participation, but uh, yeah, we're glad you uh, are attracted. Well, a lot of those people, according to the Book of Acts, became Christians. When they heard about Christianity, they said, well, here's something we can be full members of. It's, it's continuous with Scripture. It has the same uh, lofty morality, and it, uh, there's not an in-group that uh, has these mores that are alien to us. Well, it looks like with them and with ex-pagans, right, Apollo worshippers, uh, Mithraists, and so forth, that uh, that Pauline Christianity said, you're not a Jew. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, as some Jewish Christians thought. Like in Acts 15, uh, some of the Pharisee Christians, and believe it or not, there were such things, uh, they said, oh, if they don't get circumcised, they can't be saved. And Paul says, oh, yeah, the hell they can't. And, and his view seemed to have been, it's no big deal for Jews to keep the Torah. It's like a fish in water. They were raised in this culture. But if you got Joe Gentile over here, and he's saying, well, I, I can't eat ham sandwiches anymore. I can't have shrimp anymore. I get circumcised? Well, what the hell? Uh, and he said, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, to insist on that is to create a false stumbling block, uh, putting it uh, in the path of conversion so 
people will uh, stumble over it. He said, there's no reason these people should have to become Jews and give up their own culture. So uh, don't, don't give them any trouble. All right, that makes sense. But in Acts, we're told, I think in chapter 21, James tells Paul, you know, there's a rumor going around out there that you're telling Jews not to raise their kids as Jews. Now, you you got to clear that up, and Paul uh, agrees to, to try to do that. Um, but is that really right? I mean, it says that, uh, Acts says that Paul had been a Pharisee and studied with Gamaliel and all that. It, it looks like it's kind of a whitewash uh, trying to reconcile Paul as a figurehead of one type of Christianity with Peter and James, uh, heads of a different branch, or figureheads are long gone by the time Acts is written. So that isn't necessarily accurate. Um, in fact, it, it might lead you to think that Paul was telling Jews, you don't have to keep the Torah anymore. In Galatians, he seems to come kind of close to that, but I think uh, he, like he condemns Cephas for Judaizing the Gentiles, that's actually the, the Greek word, Judaizo, uh, and uh, to, to make the Gentiles observe a Jewish lifestyle. And he said, if you insist on that, you're negating Christ. Uh, and uh, it's not absolutely clear, but he says, if nothing has changed, why did Jesus die? I mean, there, there must have been some connection there. And of course, his view is that the Torah was a kind of a set of training wheels. It was, uh, uh, the law was a, like a pedagogue uh, to uh, virtually enslave the young until they were able to uh, you know, think for themselves and make their own moral decisions. That would seem to apply to Jews as well as Gentiles, but all we can be sure of there is that he's telling Gentiles, if you think you have to be circumcised and presumably keep the rest of the 612 commandments, um, then uh, w what's the point? W what difference does Christ make? Well, I can, I can tell you, none. Uh, and so it's not clear. And and I have, once, I believe it or not, read seven major commentaries on Romans. The whole thing, front to back, cover to cover. I was amazed that critical scholars could not even agree as to whether Paul taught that the law was non-binding anymore. Uh, James Dunn and others say, no, he says that the that you can fulfill the law better than ever. And others say, oh, no, no, that's that's over. It's not that clear. Uh, a great book on this that takes a really unusual view is Lloyd Gaston's book, Paul and the Torah, uh, where he says, he kind of defines the problem and its difficulty in a different way by saying that Paul is the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. He's writing to the Gentiles, not to Jews. So we don't know what he would have thought about the obligation of Jewish Christians. Uh, well, he's sort of got a point there. Uh, it's, uh, but even there, it's not absolutely clear. Uh, so um, 
what was he doing by trying to convert uh, pagans and Jews to Christianity? Well, if he wrote the business in uh, Romans 9 through 11, it, it seems like he had in mind uh, this famous passage from, I think it's it's found in two prophets, Micah and Isaiah, that in the last days there'd be a mass turning of Gentiles to the Torah. Uh, God would have vindicated his people and it would have been obvious enough who had been right all along. And they would say, okay, well, with all this paganism, it's obviously the Jews had the, the real thing. Let's, let's learn it. Um, and so that he thought that God had a timetable uh, for Jews and Christians, I'm sorry, Jews and Gentiles, a bunch of uh, each to, uh, to come into the fold. And uh, I don't know that you'd have a theology like that if you... Uh, were trying to promote something really of a political nature. You might, I guess, but uh, it's not that clear. I'm sorry if this is confusing, but it is confused. It's one of those things where I have to say, if you think this is confusing, it's not because you don't get it. It's because you do get it, because it is confusing, as far as I know, anyway. Okay. This is kind of a long one, so maybe it'll be the, the last one for tonight. From Daniel Thomas Mollenkamp. He says, I have two questions. The first is very brief. First, it sounds like you're still recounting episodes of the recording, episodes of the human Bible. Is that accurate? I cannot find them listed online other than the original 35 episodes, which were published about five years ago. If you're still publishing episodes, where can I find them? Yeah, they're, they're much fewer and farther between than I would like, but I, I hopefully will do uh, another one tomorrow. But the thing is, now they're part of the package of being a Patreon donor, which would just cost you a buck a month uh, or, if, uh, or more, but that would be enough to do it. And then you would be alerted uh, every time a new human Bible um, went up on, on Facebook. Uh, and uh, so I am still doing them. I appreciate your interest. And all of the the posted columns and podcasts are, are listed on the on my Patreon page. Yeah, second, I know you have described yourself as a Christian atheist. I've always understood you to mean that you have an affinity for the Judeo-Christian tradition and that you recognize the deep impact that has had on your life and psyche. The phrase has gathered some cultural currency over the last 10 years or so, with figures like uh, Slavaj Zizek and Jordan Peterson, who have both invoked it. I'm wondering what you think about some of Zizek's claims, in particular regarding the connection between the Christian tradition, or at least his interpretation of that tradition, and atheism. To paraphrase, Zizek argued in front of the Oxford Union Club earlier this year that Christianity uh, is really a religion of atheism, uh, quoting Hegel and seeming to me redolent of the old pagan charges against Christianity. Zizek says that what died on the cross was the idea that there is a higher power up there. 
According to Zizek, this means that the tradition overcomes the division between God and humanity by, quote, transposing it to God himself. This idea that my distance from God is inscribed into God himself, end quote. One consequence of this, drawn out by Zizek, is that the second coming is not a physical one, but an inhabitation from the Holy Spirit in a brotherly love sort of way. In his words, the second coming means that what you are waiting for, oh my God, God left us, maybe he will come again, is already here in the community of believers. Uh, end quote. This, the secret core message of Christianity, he says, is that when you're feeling alone and separated from God, that this was God's gift to us, uh, quote, uh, this is the freedom that God gave us, unquote. He also cites G.K. Chesterton in claiming that the moment of Jesus' doubt, God, why have you forsaken me, is a moment where God himself is, if only for a moment, an atheist. He quotes uh, Paul Claudel, too, saying that, quote, the ultimate mystery of Christianity is not that we are impotent without God, but that God is impotent without us. Unquote. That sounds like Meister Eckhart also. It's beautiful in a Jungian enantiodromia way. However, it feels like a compromise and a theological revision of the Christian tradition brought on by the advance of atheism. As an atheist myself, I don't much mind the speculative gymnastics, which can be entertaining, but why even bother with the concept of God at all? Uh, it seems too poetical and detached to maintain a popular Christian movement on. Uh, if it is so unintuitive and so obviously being driven by outside factors, the cultural rejection of traditional Christianity, then perhaps it would be easier to let Christianity become the equivalent of, say, the Homeric epics. They're beautiful, people study and cherish them, but no one thinks they reflect reality anymore. What do you think of Zizek's claims? Of course, I, I have to admit I've never read him, but uh, it... Uh, it sounds a good bit like uh, uh, Thomas Altizer, uh, from whom I first learned Christian atheism. In the first book of his I read, The Gospel of Christian Atheism, a very fascinating book. And uh, the follow-up, The Descent into Hell. Uh, he's written various books that I confess I can make no sense of. But uh, these I could, and... Uh, he his view is also uh, echoed, I think, in the work of Don Cupid, uh, and uh, I've read a whole bunch of his books, which are all very, very clear. And uh, one of them is uh, called "Taking Leave of God," and with Altizer and Cupid, I get the impression. Well, like uh, they both kind of say that this emergent death of God Christianity is um, Christian in form, but Buddhist in content. And uh, by the latter, he means that it's like the, the, the dialectic of Nagarjuna, which is fundamental to Mahayana Buddhism, that you do not escape samsara, this world of matter and 
sorrow and reincarnation, etc., in, in order to take refuge in nirvana, a state of meditative uh, peacefulness, and then um, extinction of the psycho, psychological self, the ego, upon death and, and the attainment of eternal nirvana, Nagarjuna said, no, that, that's wrong. Uh, even if you could do that, it would be selfish. And don't we teach the no-self doctrine that there is ultimately no individual ego and that's what you've got to get rid of? A lot of Hindu and Buddhist um, theology say that. Well, what is the alternative? To recognize that Samsara is nirvana if you know how to look at it. Uh, it's only a, a state of pain and frustration and disappointment if you're expecting too much out of it. Uh, if you expect it to be just a rose garden. Uh, no, it can't be. And for the same reasons, Buddhism always said that, uh, that you will find samsara frustrating and disappointing. Uh, it's it's ever-changing. You can never find peace and satisfaction in such a realm. Uh, but the thing is, you ought to be able to look deeper and see that, that nirvana is at the basis of it. And this seems to me, in effect, to be much like pantheism, where uh, you realize there is a divine substratum to everything, that is glowing through it, if only you can learn to see it. Uh, and uh, you will go on your way rejoicing. And this, uh, this has interesting ethical implications, as it did in Mahayana Buddhism. You, you can't selfishly seek your own salvation, and you know the, the rest of you, good luck to you. No, no, you can't do that. It's like, whoever will save his life will lose it. Okay, so uh, what you have to do is to work for the salvation of others by doing a life of good works which accumulate merit not to get you a reward or anybody a reward, but uh, to somehow give you the good karma more than you would ever need to pass on to others who just don't have what it takes to become a bodhisattva, a, a Buddha in training. So there is a religion of grace and faith in Mahayana Buddhism that is premised on uh, an elite who can bear the burden of it and are happy to do so because they see the, uh, the elusive witch-fire glow of nirvana within samsara. It's almost like communion. Yeah, outwardly it remains bread and wine, chemically, but uh, it's edifying if you understand that really, essentially, it's the body and blood of Christ. And Altizer says, we live in a world full of pain and war, and I'll just turn on the, the news. Uh, and, of course, the Bodhisattva will do what he can to uh, uh, to, to solve these problems and, and so on. And it's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you, you're a mere being of flesh, but inside you have the life of Christ or the Buddha nature. And that keeps you going and, and enables you to make a difference 
uh, for the good of others and uh, and ultimately their salvation uh, and ultimately everybody all beings will be saved and only then will you be saved but that's all right you will have attained nirvana here and now uh, and uh, so it's it's very the death of god theologies is, theology says this in terms of the cross that uh, in the cross god has died the transcendent jehovah or whatever you want to call him who was separated from us uh, is now uh, one with us uh, because on the cross um, signaled by that or brought about by it whatever what that ought to mean to christians is that the transcendent has been poured out into the profane and uh this uh is is the value of the very powerful symbols of christianity altizer is willing to cut loose the idea of resurrection because he says that just negates whatever it was we think happened on the cross rather he prefers the alternate mythic symbol of the descent into hell uh, hell being the world of samsara and suffering that there is uh, not so much a holy ghost but a ghost of holiness that pervades it if you can see it uh, and uh, and and this is based on Nietzsche and Hegel and a lot of these things. The the death of God, the transcendent God, uh, what, who dominates everything and whom we have to serve like slaves and all of this. That's over with, uh, and a new human maturity is possible. I find that uh, very very powerful. Uh, and I, one way of putting it is, plain old secular atheism leaves me cold i mean the rationalism of it i like that i agree with that but it it seems to result in a kind of dry sterile uh secularism that is unesthetic somehow and uh and and is not uh aware of the transcendent whatever that is right i'm not even making any metaphysical claims for it but uh that's a kind of a random uh, rambling by a senile death of god theologian uh, i have a book called uh, preaching deconstruction which is a bunch of sermons of mine that are based on altizer and derrida and uh, it's it's it, they're sermons because i'm trying to show that there is practical edifying uh material here that people who don't appreciate christian atheism or deconstruction are looking at it uh from afar and sort of crossing their fingers as if they were trying to ward off a vampire uh and uh it, it, i see why it affronts them but i believe it repays sympathetic study and uh, I, I feel like one of the heirs of the great Altizer, and the, the greatest theologian of the uh, late 20th and the 21st century so far. Well, okay, I better get going here before my voice get, gives out, but that's great doing another.
Bible Geek did one recently, but there was a long period of famine there, and I hope to be doing them more often. I also hope tomorrow to do another Human Bible. So if you're feeling in a generous mood and you want to go over to uh, GoFundMe uh, and help out, that'd sure be great. Uh, but I'll see you next time on The Bible Geek in any case. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.